We see in these verses this morning that Esau is faulted for his faithless acts. He despises his birthright and God holds him morally responsible for his choices and for his actions. If you have found your way to Genesis chapter 25, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 27, the word of the Lord says, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he is also called, also named Edom. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. May God be praised through the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. These words from the journal of Jim Elliot are likely some of the the best known Christian words that have been penned over the past 100 years. These are words that we likely all have heard and they're written by a man who modeled faithful devotion to Christ and a passionate desire for the nations to hear the gospel. Jim Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador and was killed seeking to bring Christ to an unreached people group. And this sentence from his journal has in part become so well known because he lived and died by the truth that he wrote. That he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He and those who died with him lost their earthly lives which he could not keep and gained that which he could not lose an eternal reward and a faithful witness to the gospel among those who had never heard the name of Christ. And so the life and the words of Jim Elliot remind us that it is a wise thing to give up that which is temporal, fleeting, and earthly to gain that which is of surpassing value and eternally secure in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we must here agree with Elliot that what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ is of infinitely greater value than anything we can lose on earth, suffer on earth, or desire on earth. And if Jim Elliot's words are true, certainly it is equally true that he is a great fool that gives what is of eternal value for that which cannot be kept nor can satisfy. And as foolish as we would all agree that that is, that is precisely what we are all tempted to do. We are tempted to be the fool who gives that which is of eternal value for that which is momentary, fleeting, and ultimately unsatisfying. Dear Christian, is this not true for you? When we lie, lust, gossip, slander, hate, anger, uh, jealousy, we uh, have selfish ambition and worship 
idols, when we indulge these sins, are we not trading in God's blessings of holiness, sanctification, and assurance of salvation? Are we not trading in the pleasures of God for the fleeting pleasures of sin? This becomes so extreme in the lives of some that they walk away from the faith. They commit apostasy. In the last decade or so, apostasy, this walking away from the faith, seems to be becoming more and more common. We don't usually talk about it in terms of apostasy. Others talk about it in terms of deconstructing their faith, that they no longer believe that which they said that they believe. I've deconstructed my faith, and now I've become an atheist or an agnostic. I'm no longer a Bible-believing Christian. And there's all sorts of reasons given for deconstruction that is growing in commonality. Some are familial. I was forced to go to church when I was young, but I didn't really believe that. I only believed it because my parents did. I didn't really think for myself. Sometimes it's because of political advantageousness. Sometimes it's because of hypocrisy and abuse in the church that I no longer want to have anything to do with that. A lot of the times it's intellectual. I've I've now somehow attained a higher level of understanding and have walked away from the faith. And for all the reasons that are given for deconstructing one's faith, ultimately it boils down to this. It's about trying to live free from the reign of God over them. They may give intellectual reasons or familial reasons or uh, church reasons and the hypocrisy, but for all of that, it's really about not wanting to be told what I can and cannot do with my life. It's about indulging my desires. It's about immediate gratification. It's about getting and doing whatever I see right in front of me at the expense of that which is of eternal value. This is true of those who apostatize. It's true of believers. It's also true of all unbelievers. There are many who hear the gospel, but they remain ignorant and blind to the value of the prize which is in front of them. They're blinded by their hunger for the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of their possessions. They trade in that which is of real value for that which is valueless. And so in different ways to varying degrees, we all alike give up what is of eternal value for that which is fleeting, momentary, and ultimately unsatisfying. And this is the cautionary tale of Jacob and Esau. This is the lesson that we learn here. These two boys, they grew up in the same privileged home. They grew up hearing of the mighty deeds of God. They grew up hearing of what God had done in the life of Abraham and Isaac before them. They heard of God's faithfulness. No doubt their grandfather spoke to them of a covenant-keeping God. Jacob and Esau are 15 years old when Abraham dies. And one author says this, One can imagine Abraham holding them on his knee and pointing them up to the sky and out to the land to explain the blessings of this family. And yet these boys must make their own choices and face their own testing. While they both had learned of the faithfulness and trustworthy of God, trustworthiness of God, though they knew of the promise that was going to come through Abraham and his seed, that there would be an offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and that they would inherit the land and the blessings of God. One child, Esau, walks away. 
And we have an explanation here in this passage of how he forfeits his birthright. And it serves as a cautionary tale for us because Esau is just like the rest of us, so willing to give up that which is of eternal value for that which cannot satisfy. And so the main lesson is clear for us, dear brothers and sisters. God's people value God's blessing above all else. There is nothing else that can satisfy the way God's blessing and His presence and His grace can. We must rightly value that which is of eternal value against that which is of no value. But what will this look like in our lives? How will we know that we are truly valuing God's blessing above all else. And, and where did Esau go wrong? Why do God's people give up what is of immense value in exchange for something worth nothing? Well, I want to see in three points this morning, if you're following along and taking notes, I want to highlight where Esau and Jacob go wrong and what we must do instead because we value God's blessing above all else. Now, the points are a little bit longer than they normally are if you're following along in your handout, but that's because I want to really highlight the contrast that Jacob and Esau present for us. So the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that Esau was consumed by his fleshly desires, but God's people are not controlled by our desires. While Esau is consumed by what he wants, God's people are not controlled by their desires. And this passage begins by establishing this contrast for us between Jacob and Esau. They're twins. They come about by the same act of conception, but they could not be more different. We saw this in the birth narrative, that God turns the birthright upside down, that there are two nations in the womb that are going to war against one another, and the older will serve the younger. And this even begins to manifest itself in their births as Esau comes out first, but Jacob is clasping onto his heel, living up to his name. And here, the differences and the distinctions, the contrast between them just continue. Esau, on the one hand, is an expert hunter, a skillful hunter and an outdoorsman. He is strong and masculine. He's a man of the field, comfortable camping out in the woods. To many of you, this sounds awesome at first. After all, last week we learned he was a hairy man. He likely had a big beard and was burly and lived out in the woods and was able to hunt. Many of you might would love to exchange hunting tales around the campfire with him. After all, he didn't go out with a rifle, but likely primitive hunting instruments. But this is actually not a positive description. You see, this description here of Esau being an expert hunter, a skillful hunter, actually associates him with a character that we've seen earlier in the book of Genesis. His name is Nimrod. And in Genesis chapter 10, we read that Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. And he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. And that is why, as it said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. And Nimrod is the man who founded Babylon, where the Tower of Babel would be built. Nimrod is an enemy of God. He is evil, and this is an evil association. Esau is being marked off as unholy as this hunter. At the same time, Jacob is marked off as a quiet man. He's civilized, domestic in character. This word quiet likely means something like refined, civilized. 
If he were in modern day, he would be a member of the Finer Things Club. He dwells in tents rather than out in the field hunting like his brother. He stays close to home. And if God's prophecy, and if their birth narrative, and if these descriptions don't contrast them enough, their parents put the icing on the cake. We read in the text that Isaac loved Esau because of his wild, because he loved wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we have this contrast here, one parent favoring the one and the other favoring the other child. And what drives Isaac is not necessarily Esau's sonship or even his firstborn status. It's his own natural senses and his desires that drove him to love Esau. He brings me wild game and I love to eat wild game. That's why I love Esau. Game is what Isaac truly loves and Esau receives love because he supplies it. On the other hand, Rebecca loves Jacob. And we're not given a reason necessarily, but it seems that likely the reason is because of God's choice of Jacob, because of the prophecy that we read of last week, that the younger would serve the older. So we have this recipe for disaster in Isaac's family. There's distinct contrast between these two boys. And the episode that follows reveal their differing attitudes toward toward God and his blessing. Look with me at verse 29. In verse 29, it says, Once Jacob was cooking a stew, and Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, because I'm exhausted. That is why he's also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. You see here, Jacob's in the tent as he normally would be. He's cooking up a stew. And this stew, this lentil stew, is likely a meatless stew. It's just a plain vegetable stew. And Esau bursts into the tent and he says, Give me something to eat. I'm famished. I'm about to die. I'm physically weakened because of my hunger. Now it's unlikely that he was literally about to die because he was hungry. After all, he's walking into the tent. He wasn't carried in by his companions. But he demands food. And, and the CSB does a pretty good job here of, of translating. But he's, he's asking him, let me gulp down some of that red stuff. Let me uh, drink it in uh, vigorously. Let me eat that red stuff. And the author, Moses, gives us an editorial comment here. This is why his people are known as the Edomites. That's the Hebrew word for red. But nonetheless, he barges in demanding that he eat. And we learn about Esau through this account that he's a very short-sighted man. He's living for immediate gratification. He didn't want to hear about what he might gain later. He knew that he was hungry right then and there. I want stew and I want it now. And when Jacob asked him to sell his birthright for the stew, he does. He has no thought for tomorrow and certainly no thought for eternity. He's thinking about right now. He's completely consumed by his natural desires and driven by his earthly desires. There is nothing else that matters to Esau than his immediate gratification. And dear church, isn't that exactly what the world tells us we're supposed to do? The world tells us to pursue immediate gratification. If it feels good, do it. No matter what it costs, you are what you want. The world tells us that our identity is found in our desires. 
The most obvious and most common category that we see this in is in sexuality and gender. If you feel one way, then that's what you are. It matters not what God or anyone else says about you. If you feel it, be it. Your desire defines you. Act on whatever your desires are. Be who you want to be. Don't think about the long-term cost. And certainly don't think about the eternal consequences. Oh, dear church, the warning of this passage is not to be consumed and controlled by our desires. They, our desires must be properly ordered with respect to God's revelation. You see, there's no doubt that Esau knew of the promises of God to Abraham and to Isaac that would be passed on to the next generation, that a people would inherit the land, and that uh, through them, through that offspring, there would be a blessing for the nations that would come in the form of the Messiah. No doubt Esau knew all of those things, and he cared not, because he was consumed by that which he needed right then. But dear church, the warning to us is to know God's word and to properly order our desires. To not be consumed by that which we want now. But to be, uh, be desirous of that which God says is good. I would note here that it's not wrong for Esau to be hungry. It's not wrong for Esau to ask for a bowl of stew. But it is wrong to sell something of value for something that is worthless. And so, dear Christian, we want to order our values around what God says is valuable. And we want to order our desires around what God says we ought to desire. If you were to flip over into the New Testament and read in the book of James, we, we learn there that James has some categories for desires. There are evil desires. Certainly, if you desire to murder someone, you shouldn't. God has said, this is evil, you shall not murder. This is an evil desire. And then there's good desires. There are things that we can want that is good and right, and that God said is in, within Christian freedom for us to want. But the category that James gives us is that of ruling desires, controlling desires. And we have ruling desires and controlling desires when that which is good, that desire that we have for that which God has said is fine and acceptable within Christian freedom, controls us. And it becomes something that we must have right now, just like Esau. You know, dear church, a sure sign that a good desire has become a ruling desire for you is if you're willing to sin to get it or you're willing to sin when you don't. And I encourage you, dear church, to give your heart that test over and over and over. What am I wanting right now? And is it good? But if it's good, am I allowing it to control everything about me? Am I sinning in order to get this thing that I want? That's what Esau did. He gave up his birthright. He gave up that which is valuable for nothing. We cannot have desires ruling us in this way. Psalmist David tells us that there's only one desire that should rule the Christian. He says in Psalm 27 verse 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. 
David says the one desire that controls the Christian is to be with God and to know God and to view the beauty of God. The one desire of the Christian is God Himself and to know Him and to be with Him. Dear church, let us not chase after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of our possessions, but let us seek after God, the one thing that He says is most desirable, and then order all of our other desires under that. But more than anything, let us not chase after the fleeting pleasures of the world, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses actually serves as an example for us here. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, we read by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. Dear church, like Paul, who counted his entire life as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ, who condemned those whose God was their belly, whose end was their, was destruction, and like Moses, who chose to suffer with the people of God and to put off gratification until eternity, counting the treasures of God and the value of Christ to be greater than all that Egypt had to offer, let us order our values and our desires accordingly. Let us not give into the world's call for self-indulgence and immediate gratification. Let us not be so short-sighted. Esau was consumed by his fleshly desires. But God's people must not be controlled by theirs. This is one way that we see that we value God and His blessing above everything else. But there's a second way that we can see that. And it's that Jacob was unwilling to trust God to fulfill his word. But God's people act faithfully trusting God to accomplish his sovereign will. If we continue going through the passage, we see that Jacob's response to Esau's request for stew was faithless. Without skipping a beat upon the request of Stu, we read in verse 31 that Jacob asked for the birthright. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. And look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. The decent thing for Jacob to have done would be to give Esau some stew, to love his neighbor as himself and yet Jacob sees here an opportunity and so he demands an extreme form of payment he shows his deceitfulness here and in verse 32 Esau again shows his short-sightedness there's no concept to him of what is truly valuable and so he agrees to sell his birthright Esau is living for the moment I'm hungry I'm hungry now what good is this birthright to me when all I can think about is my growling insatiable hunger and so he sold his birthright now the birthright here in the ancient world included a few different things it included a double inheritance and so if there were two boys the inheritance that would be left after the father's passing would actually be divided into three portions two of which would go to the older son one of which would go to the younger son and so it would be divided in that way so there's a double inheritance that comes with it but also patriarchal headship 
that in the passing of Isaac, Esau would be the one to assume the mantle to become head of the family. But then beyond that, and even more important than that, unique to Abraham's family comes the promises of God, comes the blessings of God. There's the covenant blessings and promises that we've studied for so long in Genesis. This is the birthright. Esau gives it all away for a bowl of vegetable soup. And Jacob immediately, being a good salesman, I think, stops talking and asks to sign on the dotted line. He says, swear to me. And this is, by the way, the cultural equivalent of signing on the dotted line before a notary public. Esau is taking an oath and it is going to be upheld. He's swearing it away. We should be absolutely astounded that Esau would so easily give up his double inheritance, give up his family headship, but most importantly, give up his heir to the heirship to the covenant blessings for a bowl of stew. And Jacob, all the while, is rubbing his hands together, thinking, What God said is coming true. He said that the younger, the older is going to serve the younger. And I've made it happen for myself. I'm now in the position that God promised when I was born. And so he serves him a bowl of soup. And because Jacob is such a kind young man, he gives him some bread to go with it. And Esau eats. Now, we want to note here that what Jacob does is evil. He has done wrong by his brother. He has deceived him and he has obtained the covenant blessing and obtained the inheritance by sinful means. And yet we also have to acknowledge that at least Jacob valued that which was valuable. There's a sense in which he sees the covenant blessings of God as that which is to be desired and to be obtained. And yet, he fails to recognize that he has already been designated that covenant heir by God at his birth. There was a promise made to his mother that the older would serve the younger. There was no need for Jacob to take advantage. And yet he does so because he's unwilling to trust God and to wait for his promises to come to pass. We see that we saw this play out over and over again in the life of his grandfather and now Jacob is wearing those shoes. Dear church, let us be reminded from this text that when God makes promises, he will surely fulfill them. The question for you and I is, are we going to believe them and wait for his timing to fulfill them? Will we believe the word of God and will our behavior flow from that belief? What Jacob does is he grasps after that which God has promised. He wants to do what God promised but in Jacob's way. He's willing to manipulate and sin in order to get that which God had already promised to him. Jacob was unwilling to trust God to fulfill his word. He decided he had to do it his own way. This is Abraham taking Hagar and conceiving Ishmael all over again. And so the warning to us, dear church, the caution to us is to trust God to fulfill His promises. 
God is going to do precisely what He said He was going to do. Everything that comes into our lives is for our good and for His glory. He is working to sanctify us and make us holy and make us blameless before Him. There are no shortcuts to that. When God brings trials into our life, He is doing so for our own good. And we must receive that by faith and trust God is going to fulfill and do that which He has promised to do. Christ is going to return again. And He is not slack concerning His promises. He's not delaying that promise. He is going to return and bring His people to Himself. God is going to save a people for Himself from every tongue, tribe, people, and and nation. And there's no amount of emotional manipulation that we can do to accomplish the promises of God. God is going to save a people for Himself by His sovereign grace. Jacob was unwilling to trust God to fulfill His Word. But we, God's people, must act faithfully and trust God in His time to accomplish His sovereign will. And if we do that, we show that we value God's blessing above everything else. But there's a third and final thing that I want us to see this morning. And I've changed it a little bit from your notes because I decided to just take what the Bible says. Esau despised God's promises, but God's people cherish God's promises. You see, this is the whole point of the story. It's not just that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. He despises it. Verse 34 tells us, Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate drink, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. That which was his right as the oldest son. The blessing that God had given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, was Esau's birthright. Humanly speaking, the kingdom should have come through Esau. The promised Messiah should have come through Esau. The nation should have come through Esau. The land should have belonged to Esau. The birthright was his, but he despised it. He counted it as worthless, of little value. He literally counted it worth less than a bowl of soup. God's blessings, God's presence, and God's Messiah was counted of no value by Esau. And so we read, and you can almost hear it happening as it plays out. He ate, he drank, he pushes his chair back, got up, and he went away. He, you can almost hear him letting out a burp as he leaves. Like, oh, I'm satisfied. I've got my belly full. That's all I really needed. He leaves from Jacob's tent as if it was totally worth it to sell his birthright. Completely indifferent to the cost. Now, I want you to know that I understand the value of a good bowl of soup. I recently had the flu. And when you have the flu, there's nothing better than a good bowl of soup. And yet, I understand the value of it with respect to the blessing and the promises of God. But not Esau. He said, I've got to have that bowl of soup right now. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I need to have it right now. He didn't care about the promises of God. He cared nothing for the blessings of God. He cared more for a bowl of stew than a saving relationship with God. And for his choice, Esau has made an example, a warning in the New Testament. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, 
and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Dear friend, if you are here this morning, the world wants you to despise the promises of God and the gospel and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But the scriptures remind you here in Genesis and the author of Hebrews reminds you in Hebrews 12 that there is nothing more valuable than the salvation that God offers through Christ. There is no reason to repeat the mistake of Esau and despise the blessing of God for the sake of a bowl of stew. You can turn to God. The same choice lies before you this morning that you may look by faith to Jesus who has secured the covenant blessings of God and in salvation for all who would believe. And the world continues whispering in your ear, eat the soup, eat the soup, enjoy your sin, enjoy this life while, you, while it lasts, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die, and there's nothing after. But the Bible speaks so powerfully to you. The Bible says to you that it's not worth it to eat the soup. It's not worth it to enjoy the pleasures of sin because there is something of infinite value that has been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ who goes to the cross not for his own wrongdoing but for the sins of the world to give his life and to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sinners just like you. For the forgiveness of Esau's just like you who have indulged themselves and walked away burping from the table of sin. Jesus shed his life for sinners such as you. If you will turn to him. Repent of your sin. Repent of your longings for sin. And turn to Christ, confessing Him to be of surpassing value above all else. You will be saved. And there's also a warning here for the one who might be tempted to walk away from the faith. You who have sat at the table of the Lord, who have enjoyed the blessings of God, who have known Christ, who have seen in, with your eyes and by eyes of faith that the blessings of God truly are more valuable than all else. This serves as a warning to you against walking away. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to those Jewish Christians who were tempted to apostatize, tempted to leave the faith. They're thinking, it's not worth it to be persecuted. Everything that we're going through, it's not worth it. I think I'll just go back to being a Jew. And that's why the author of Hebrews records Hebrews twelve sixteen. That's why he gives the warning of Esau Make sure there isn't any among you who would indulge themselves in sin. By doing so, you are essentially selling your birthright in exchange for a single meal. And the saddest part about Esau's life is that there came a time when he really did want the birthright. Verse 17 says, he wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. He sought it with tears. Isaac, bless me as well. Father, give me the blessing. I realize that it was worth something now. But in his heart, 
he was not able to repent. Because ultimately, he was the same man who gave up the birthright for a bowl of stew. Oh, dear Christian, let me challenge you to persevere in the faith. To turn away from Christ is to turn away from the blessings of God that are of surpassing value. To turn back to the things of the world would be to sell that birthright that Jesus has purchased for you in order to eat a bowl of soup. But even short of apostasy, even short of turning away from our eternal salvation, dear Christian, we often are tempted to despise the promise of God when we value the things of the world higher than His Word, His will, and His blessings. Don't we make a similar choice to Esau all the time when we value that which the world has to offer, value the things of the world, value sin even over Jesus and what God has done for us? Aren't we despising the blessings when we have no time for prayer or the Word, but we have all the time in the world for our favorite TV show, our favorite sports team, or our favorite hunting plot? We have all of this time for recreation, but no time for the Lord. And let this be a warning to you, especially dear young people. Give yourselves wholly and completely to the Lord. Follow Jesus. See that which is of infinite value. Give that which you cannot keep for that which you cannot lose. There is something better than what this world has to offer. And yet all the time we think, I need this now. What good is it going to do for me if I go to heaven, but I don't have this right now? Isn't that what we're saying when we go after the things of the world? Esau despised his birthright, and when we trade the things of God for the things of the world, we we are ignoring the value of what God has done for us in Christ. There's a young man who painted that picture for us this morning. By stepping into the baptismal waters, he was proclaiming to us and reminding all of us that there is something of greater value. Forgetting the things that are behind and pressing on to that which is of head. I'm, I'm pursuing the high calling. I'm pursuing righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. The things of the world are behind me and the infinite worth of Jesus Christ is ahead. May we imitate that childlike faith. Oh dear Christian, let us not give ourselves to the things of the world. Let us be reminded by this example that every one of us who have professed faith in Christ and have stepped into the baptismal waters were declaring that God's promises are not to be despised, but rather they are to be cherished. May God stir that in our hearts this morning. There's one final point of application that I want to make. And it's this, God's sovereign election is just. We talked a lot about last week God's choice of Jacob and his passing over of Esau. And we we saw that God did that by not viewing any good or bad in these boys. It's by God's sovereign free grace 
But we see here that this does not eliminate human responsibility. Esau is faulted for his choice to despise his birthright. He's responsible for all of his actions. He's responsible for his ignorance or or, or ignoring the promises of God. No doubt we understand from the doctrine of election that he was indeed passed over by God. And at the same time, he is not saved because of his choice and his contempt of God. He chose his lot. Now, I want to be clear. There is absolutely no reason for us to have to choose between one or the other divine sovereignty, or human responsibility. These are not pitted against one another. Genesis 25 makes it absolutely clear that God's sovereignty works in perfect conjunction with human responsibility. We don't have to take Ephesians 1 and leave John 3.16. Both are absolutely true together. We have moral responsibility. We exercise our will. We make real choices to believe or reject the gospel. And yet it's equally true that we are predestined in Christ before the foundations of the world, chosen by God's grace. I would also note that Esau is not losing anything that he desired. Esau is not falling on his face before God. God, please choose me. Please grant me the birthright. I desire this above everything else. Your blessings are more valuable to me than anything else in the world. God did not look at Esau fixated on the promise and then not give it to him. When a person rejects grace, they are losing something that they never desired to begin with. In fact, they despise it. Esau's reject the promise. We see the same thing happen in Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is not a gentle man, a loving man who cares so well for the people of God and of Israel. In fact, he's the exact opposite. He wants to do evil. We see the heart of a wicked man who oppressed God's people. But in Romans and in Exodus as well, we read that God raised him up. God elected him as an instrument, as a vessel of judgment that God's power might be shown in all the earth. But Pharaoh didn't lose a single thing that he wanted. He hated God. And he hated the people of God. You see, people are not depicted in Scripture as seeking to glorify God, trying to find salvation, wanting to please God, valuing His blessing above all else. No one is beating on the gates of heaven and God is refusing to let them in. The picture in Scripture is every single sinner in the entire world running as fast as they can to hell because they hate God and God changes their hearts and gives them new life that they would desire God and value His blessings above all else. And that's the difference between Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a swindler. Jacob is an opportunist. Jacob is the heel grabber. And But before he was born, God chose him for grace. And this clearly is unconditional. There's nothing better about Jacob. There's no condition or potential that merited his salvation. It is of God's, it is of God's free, sovereign grace. Jacob was just as unworthy as Esau. And yet God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so Christ is that which is of most value. And it is by God's grace that you and I see that this morning. May we pray for everyone that we know that God, by His supernatural grace, through His Spirit, would enlighten the eyes and the hearts of those who were blinded by sin, who were bent over the table, enjoying and indulging the soup of their sin. May we pray that God would lift their eyes from the bowl of sin to the glories of Jesus Christ. May God do that work in every sinner that we know. Christ is that which is of most value. Christ is that greatest treasure. Christ is that which is to be valued above all else. Dear church, may we not ever be discovered to be Esau's, turning to the folly of sin away from the blessings of God. God's people value God's blessings above all all else here in just a few moments we're going to have a verse of song and it's an opportunity for us to respond and to reflect upon that which we've just heard to think about the word of God and to sing praises of his grace and reflect upon how we might be obedient this week but I also want you to let you know uh, that if you have any questions about the sermon or you have questions about salvation or you need prayer in any way there's going to be a pastor pastor JT is going to be down front after service not during the song we're not asking you to come forward but we just want you to know that we're available if you need to respond in any kind of way so let's bow in a word of prayer and then sing together Lord as we think about this passage we are reminded that the world calls us all the time. Look how delicious this bowl of stew is. Indulge in this sin just a moment. And yet you say to us, there is something of greater value. There is Christ. There is the blessing of God. There is the Savior of the world. There is He who is the greatest treasure in all the world. Lord, may you help us to desire him, to cherish him, to treasure him above everything else. And Lord, for the one who is still stooped over their bowl of sin, God, lift their eyes, work a supernatural work of grace by your spirit, and point them to Jesus, that they may value him above everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.